Welcome to A Flash of Beauty, the podcast, an audio experience dedicated to the further exploration of Bigfoot and the people Bigfoot has revealed itself to. What started as a documentary of personal narrative encounter stories and expert testimony has now shifted into a deeper inquiry into the forever changed lives of those that have witnessed firsthand this hidden truth. My name is Tobe Johnson co-producer of Flash of Beauty Bigfoot Revealed. Join me along with the crew and creators of this doc, director Brett Eichenberger, producer Jill Rimmen-Snyder, and cinematographer Michael Ferry, as we go back into the trees to sit down once again with each guest in search of the truth, no matter how strange. Okay, we're back. Brett and Jill, hello. Hello, and uh, Mike is not able to join us tonight. So our thoughts are with Mike. Not that there's anything going on. We're just thinking. Right, you're going to have a cockamamie story here where we're going to have to like have a eulogy, a phony eulogy for a missing Mike. He was kidnapped by Sasquatches deep in the wilds of Vancouver, Washington. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Or he just... Happened the wrong the round uh, happened around the wrong streets of Portland, and yeah. uh, <laughs> a lot of things can happen that way. It's easy to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, um, as I said last time, we talked about this uh, coming to a close here as far as season one. We only have a couple more interviews um, that you folks are going to hear before we get into uh, our second season. That will come sometime probably after September time frame, October. So um, if you see us, download us, listen to the archive episodes, um, and, you know, check out uh, the merch store over, I think they can go to Flash of Beauty Bigfoot Revealed Facebook page, and uh, somehow, some way they can find some merch there. And um, message us, send us a private message, or go to bigfootdoc.com forward slash store look i need to tell you right now if you if you wear a size 2xl t-shirt i have a surplus of shirts that i am willing to let go at at next to nothing so reach out to me if you're a 2xl that's shocking because you know i know the average joe that comes to bigfoot events and i'm not putting anybody down listening but you know there's some guys that uh and some gals that like a big cozy night shirt to wear let's just put it that way so i'm shocked you have two xls you know it's it's really interesting um because at i think at one of the previous events i had i didn't have enough and I was like, I better stock up on these. And then at our last, gosh, what was it? Was it uh, U- the McMinnville UFO Festival or Forks? Uh, everyone, everyone wanted an extra small or a small or maybe extra a medium. Okay. Someone did ask for an for a extra small. And I was like, well, you could fit three people <laughs> of extra small to this 2XL. So... Well, that would be interesting. Yeah. But, okay. But we. What we you digress. do with your shirt is your business. Yeah, we digress. <laughs> I, I want to emphasize, you guys out there, that if you get a Flash of Beauty T-shirt 
not only will you be helping us get the word out about our film, but you will be the envy of everyone in your community. Mm-hmm. And you will be a fashionista, as they say. <laughs> they're, they're, they're really great conversation starters. I yeah. mean, we yeah. I, I always get stopped when I wear mine. And so then I do a, a hard dive into, have you had an experience? <laughs> and they're like, no, leave me alone. And Ooh. That's a nice tagline to put on the back of a future hoodie. Have you had an experience just yeah. with like a, a Bigfoot impression in front? Like, um, and we're going to be talking about Bigfoot impressions here with our next guest. But before we do, um, you know, we, we last time we spoke about, um, well, last episode we spoke uh, to ex-Army uh, intelligence officer Kyle. And... Regarding his um, interview we did, I almost called it a testimony. We've been inundated with whistleblowers and testimony, but he gave us a Point Blake interview. There may be something in the works here where there might be a part two with him involved tangentially. I'll kind of tease that out there. So if something happens between the final episode and another little surprise, you know, keep a, keep an eye out for that. However, Jill, you asked me if I got any feedback regarding Kyle's episode. I did get a, uh, some feedback. I got um, a couple of email responses and a couple of Facebook messages, a lot of uh, emojis of, you know, heads exploding and <laughs> eyeballs and things like that. Um, a lot of Bigfoot emojis and things like that with a, you know, black helicopter emoji attached to it. But then there was a couple of people that felt uncomfortable about the interview, and I knew this was coming. And, um, you know, all I can say is just stand by to stand by. Uh, this is a interesting territory of future confirmation. Sometimes these taking, you know, these interviews take, Brett, and you can chime in on this as well as Jill, it takes months and years to g get a witness to fully trust you. Yeah. You can't just get the initial interview and all the confirmation, but you did run a background check. You did your due diligence. And Kyle, as far as I'm concerned, he was a, a very, you know, he was very forthcoming with all the questions that we asked. It didn't seem elusive. So I don't know. Any no, comments? Was, yeah, no, it, we, and I just want to stress that anything that we put in our films, um, you know, we, think long and hard about we don't just throw it in the film and there's been some controversy in the past that we all acknowledge with some of the things that we've put in our films but we've done our due diligence and um you know kyle is no no exception and i did my due diligence and i i spent a little bit of time as a contractor for the dod in a past life you know 20 some odd years ago in washington dc and so some of the things that he was talking about were familiar to me and made sense and um you know, that doesn't mean that everything he said was true, um, because we don't know. We can't prove anything. Nobody can prove anything until, you know, like we all can agree until you have a body, you know. And so that's the just that's just the world that we're in right now. Um, but I do believe that he is being authentic and transparent. I, I do believe that um, he's trying to get the word out because he thinks it's important. So, well, I don't know. If Kyle if Kyle will listen to this episode, but we'd love to talk to you further and I'd love to have a beer with you, meet you in person. Um, we can keep it on the down low. Of course, if you want to meet me in the shadows, that's all good. Good in the hood. Um, so yeah, 
but you know, it smacks of, and I think it's interesting that we put that episode out uh, in regards to this uh, congressional testimony that just happened here. And I know we go back and forth and vacillate between Bigfoot and UFOs. We can't help it. Hopefully you love both. But uh, this testimony that just happened with David Grush, Commander Fravor, and um, oh, the, the last uh, guy that saw the cube in the sphere, I'm dropping his name right now, but um, another uh, Navy fighter pilot, I believe, has a podcast called Merged. But um, incredible testimony, and we talk about this with our next guest, Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Uh, we go to some interesting territory, and it turns out Dr. Jeff Meldrum has been paying attention to the UFO issue here in, a, in a, I think, a, a personal way. So um, we go there. That's our job. We talk about uh, not only Bigfoot with uh, Dr. Meldrum and foot morphology, but we also get into the nitty gritty of what he thinks is really going on as far as physical evidence. Any thoughts from you two? We did not run a background check on Dr. Meldrum. <laughs> I did, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I went to Angie's. I, I went to Angie's list and made sure that uh, <laughs> his Yelp reviews. His are Yelp review came right. highly recommended. Yeah. Actually, um, I think this. I think this is was a great show and i i think that there's some really important information in here that we haven't gotten into we haven't really gotten into the weeds in regards to the science and the science is important there's no question about it there's no question about it and i think that um you know we need we need folks like dr jeff meldrum you know he's he puts himself out there and um he's he's certainly has done his homework you know there's no question about it and i think as far as mainstream media is concerned um you know he's going to be the guy that's going to be doing the press conference when whenever the body is brought out you know or whatever whatever conclusive evidence that comes well, out Brett, do you think that's going to happen i think it's going to happen at some point yeah you think a body is going to be brought out yep i think at some point who knows when it's going to be could be hmm. you know five years from now it could be next week who knows yeah. but it's event i think it's eventually going to happen because i think technology is marching towards disclosure you know you interesting can, i don't think that this is something that can be hidden forever and and i think the uap thing is leading the way um but we'll see we'll see mm -hmm. you know there there are some very 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 powerful forces mm -hmm. at hand that are making some decisions and you know, some of those powerful forces that are making decisions not to get all conspiracy theory on anybody, those individuals could be non-humans themselves. Well, let's get into it. Our interview with uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum here and his take on being really a lifer in the Bigfoot world. All right, with us now is Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Dr. Jeff Meldrum is a full professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University since 93. He teaches human anatomy in the graduate health professions program. His research encompasses questions of vertebrae evolutionary morphology generally, primate locomotor adaptions more particularly, and especially the emergence of modern human bipedalism. His co-edited volume, From Biped to Strider, The Emergence of Modern Human Walking, Running, and Resource Transport, proposes a more recent innovation of modern striding gait. 
than previously assumed. His interest in the footprints attributed to Sasquatch was piqued when he examined a set of 15-inch tracks in Washington in 1996. Now his lab houses well over 300 footprint casts attributed to the mystery of this primate. He conducts collaborative laboratory and field research throughout North America, the world, China, Russia, and has spoken about his findings in numerous popular and professional publications, interviews, television, and radio appearances, public and professional presentations. He is author of Sasquatch Legend Meets Science, which explains his and other scientists' evaluations of contemporary evidence and also affords deference to tribal people's traditional knowledge of the subject. He has also published two field guides, one focusing on Sasquatch, the second casting the net more broadly to consider the potential of relic hominids around the world. He is editor-in-chief of the scholarly-referred journal, The Relic Hominid Inquiry. Uh, you know, your footage in Flash of Beauty was brief, although you had quite a bit to say as far as the trackways and how there is evidence based upon the trackways that we found. Expound on basically what you meant by that, and we'll go from there. Well, as best I can recall, I, I do so many interviews and, and uh, so many projects, they all kind of blend together, but I'm, I'm sure I touched on uh, the keystones there. The, the composite footprint evidence, in my estimation, from my perspective, given my expertise, really constitutes the most persuasive, compelling body of data that we have to date, I mean, short of short of uh, a definitive diagnostic uh, DNA sequence or a physical part, a physical um, remains of one of these creatures, uh, the uh, the footprints provide the most objective, the most uh, uh, enlightening. I think uh, we can we can infer a lot from the morphology from the pattern, from the distribution of occurrence and so forth of, of these trackways. Um, they, they form such a compelling argument that with encouragement from some of my colleagues who, are, who specialize in uh, ichnotaxonomy, the study of fossilized tracks and traces, for species for uh, past extinct creatures that no longer uh, exist uh, and for whom the remains of the animal themselves selves have not been discovered. Um, I was encouraged to apply those uh, principles of, of uh, nomenclature to the Sasquatch tracks. You know, there was a time when Dr. Krantz sort of toyed with the idea of uh, perhaps we could justify the, the naming of a species on the basis of the footprints. And unfortunately, that isn't justified. That isn't an acceptable protocol. He slightly missed, missed the boat, missed the opportunity, which was to name the tracks themselves, at least to get that established. And then um, it, it provides a handle. It provides, most importantly, a definitive description and a differential diagnosis. What are the characteristics that distinguish the Sasquatch track from other species like humans and non-human hominoids, the great apes, for example, and other hominids, some. 
uh, although some resemblances uh, are, are borne out uh, in remarkable ways. So again, the, the, there was one slight hurdle, <laughs> the technicality that in the, in the sort of uh, principles, the uh, standards of procedure in ignotaxonomy, the, 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 uh, the nomenclature is only applied to extinct species. And so there have been some very outspoken skeptics, critics, that have uh, taken exception to this process and have just dismissed it offhandedly. I, I get such, uh, uh, find it so disappointing, so annoying even, that those types of individuals will dote over a principle which was not deemed as overly restrictive by the principal players in that discipline. In other words, they're assuming, these skeptics are assuming to dictate to the people who actually wrote the laws how they are to be applied and interpreted, and, and in so doing, ignore entirely the, um, the, the data, the description and diagnosis. They don't grapple with it. They say, you know, as if they don't have to, because they have deemed them unworthy of any um, uh, validation, any any consideration. So it's, that's that's been very disappointing. But on the flip side, you know, I was encouraged to uh, first present this at uh, at a gathering of experts in this discipline. There was a uh, symposium on Cenozoic tracks and traces held at the New Mexico Museum of Natural History. And uh, so here's, uh, you know, I, I made a presentation to a, uh, a room filled with, oh, it was about between 50 and 75 world experts, the leading researchers and, and uh, publishers um, in the field of the examination of fossil uh, tracks and traces, primarily of, of mammals. Uh, mammals from the Cenozoic, from the Pleistocene, from the and Pliocene, and uh, and and subsequently, it was encouraged to uh, submit it for publication in the uh, bulletin of the New Mexico Museum of Natural History, which published the peer-reviewed proceedings, a selection of uh, representative papers from that symposium. And, and it went through peer review. You know, typically, I was told quite uh, excitedly, actually, that um, typically, you know, two reviewers would uh, would uh, uh, give their review, their criticism and critique of a paper. I had five by my own at my own behest, you know, by soliciting as much input, as much as much, um, uh, you know, critique as possible. And, uh, and uh, to to a great note by the organizers of the uh, volume um, that it had passed muster. So anyway, um, the tracks from the Patterson Gimlin film site constitute the type and holotype of the uh, ichnotaxon, which is Anthropoidopes ameriborealis, which means the North American eight foot, basically, or footprint. And uh, uh, the one uh, central to that uh, diagnosis, obviously, was the distinction of the midtarsal break. Now, if your listeners aren't familiar with that term, it doesn't mean like breaking, fracturing, or injuring something. A midtarsal break 
denotes an axis of flexion, an axis about which a bending uh, occurs, and that axis constitutes a break. So uh, one of the characteristics of the Sasquatch foot that is very consistent is this broad, flat, uh, flexible foot that does not have a relatively stiff longitudinal arch, creating this more rigid platform, this characteristic of human and our immediate ancestors, <clears throat> like uh, Homo heidelbergensis. Uh, instead, it retains this more primitive midfoot flexibility, which is actually quite useful when you're going up and down very steep inclines, uh, mountainsides with irregular surfaces. Um, yeah. Question and a question to the Patterson Gimlin <clears throat> footage, the enhancements mm -hmm. that, that have been done. Looking at Patty as she's walking away in Bluff Creek, is that mid tarsal present in the foot fold? Absolutely. Then that's what's. You know, that's why I'm so confident in my interpretation, not only because of the numerous corroborative examples, but if you just focus on Patty, um, the dynamic, the interpretation of the dynamic signature of that mid-tarsal pressure ridge, or sometimes a whole disc that gets shoved back into the heel, the, the action that I'm uh, attributing to that signature can be observed in the film. You can actually see the break. You can see the heel segment elevate independently, almost reaching a vertical posture while the forefoot is still flexed. And, uh, and even during the swing phase of the foot, there's a tendency for those ligaments to kind of recoil and you get this plantar flexion across the mid-tarsal uh, joints as the as the foot swings and so it's i mean it's really it's been borne out uh by so many lines of evidence not only within the patterson gimlin film itself there are other footprints that show the distinctive pressure ridge when you take bob titmus's 10 tracks that were made in succession and and uh, i've got 3d scans of those originals rotate them nine degrees so you can look at them in profile and boom, there's the pressure ridge. I had the chance to go examine uh, Jerry Crew's footprint cast, his original 1958 cast, which is in the custody of his son, John. John uh, graciously let me, he had it mounted in a um, shadow box, and he let me open up the shadow box and unwire it, take it out. And guess what? Uh, when that original snapshot, that newspaper photo was taken, the reporter used a very bright flash, you know, as with a flashbulb as in the old days. And as a result, it has a tendency to sort of flatten out almost in a two-dimensional quality of the photo. You can see the real strong, dark shadow behind uh, Jerry on the wall. Well, it makes the surface of the cast look remarkably flat and featureless. Turn it on its side in natural light, and guess what? There's a pressure ridge in exactly the right place exactly the right orientation exactly like you see with the uh with patty you know again the audience can't see us here we're just talking i'm here right. in my uh reconstructed bedroom here set in the 70s so people can't enjoy the velvet curtains in the background but <laughs> i'm looking at jeff and you have a, a smile on your face um i mean well, when you, well when you talk i'm 
I met you in, I think, circa 2008 when you spoke in Oregon, and you st still had a smile on your face, and you've been in this since 96, I believe, after reading about this. Yeah. And you still have the joy of a child talking about uh -huh. Bigfoot. We, we all do. So, you know, for me, that's encouraging to talk to you about this regarding the fact that you're not bored by the evidence yet. Oh, no, no, no. No, it just keeps, it keeps, um, it, 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 it's more and more synergistic as, as uh, new evidence is found. I mean, this is why when Dr. Krantz reached the point, he was a little bit uh, chagrined, I think, and became a little bit jaded in his uh, closing years. And, um, I, you know, he, there were times that he would tell people, oh, don't bother with with plaster casts. Look, I've, look at all the casts I've accumulated. Where's it gotten me? And I'd say, no, no, because every new piece of evidence has the potential of adding a slightly different perspective or to um, confirm a piece of, uh, or an, an inference that has been drawn, you know, as we increase the sample size and can demonstrate this uh, pervasive consistency under the vast majority of these footprints, you know, when you can eliminate the obvious hoaxes and, and the uh, unintentional misidentifications, you know, there's a remark, and those are actually, the misidentifications are, are much more common. Uh, people tend to see what they want to see. They overinterpret a pothole or a divot or, a, you know, a melted out uh, imprint in the snow. Um, and so we're, we're constantly kind of trying to raise the, the bar for standards of evidence. And when it comes to the footprints, keep that bar high. But the blatant outright hoaxes are really few and far between. And, and uh, so you, you're left with this vast majority of the well-documented footprint cases that, that, that exhibit this remarkably consistent and internally in, uh, coherent. I mean, it's not, these are not just enlarged facsimiles of a human foot. They are, uh, they show the distinctions that one would uh, uh, expect for a large, heavy bipedal primate occupying very steep, irregular, rugged terrain. Um, that, I mean, it's just, it, it's so, it makes so much sense. And then, as I said, there are other, not only do we have more and more historical, you know, you go back to the earliest tracks. It's one thing, and then there were, there was actually some hesitancy on the part of Dr. Krantz and some of his colleagues actually uh, tried to dissuade him from publishing too much because it would give grist to the uh, hoaxers mill and it would basically you know, tip them off as to how to fake a footprint. And we've seen attempts at fake at fakery and, and I've even seen examples you know, where people try to like introduce a pressure ridge, but they put it at the wrong angle in the wrong spot. And, and it becomes very obvious that it's not uh, the real deal. But uh, yeah, every new piece of evidence is important. Dr. Meldrum, um, is there another animal, is there another ape out there that has a mid-tarsal break? Another, oh yes, yeah. That's the, that's the typical foot form of the, uh, well, all the primates to uh, varying degrees. Um, depending on their mode of locomotion. But, uh, you know, the, the most important comparison is with the other great apes. This, this midfoot flexibility 
is a derivative of the fundamental grasp climbing adaptation as it's labeled in the great apes <clears throat> with their thumb like big toe the fore part of the foot then is what we call prehensile that's the grasping portion and as they're as they're uh navigating up uh, an inclined substrate a tree trunk or a branch then they in order to maintain grasp as they are climbing i.e walking uh, up that branch uh, the heel has to still function as a lever now the the, le the fulcrum of that lever is now back at the mid tarsal joint which um, sort of decouples the action of propulsion from the function of prehension. So you have this sort of dual, dual role of, of the foot. When the foot comes to the ground, uh, early hominins did not immediately uh, develop a longitudinal arch. For even after there had been uh, some mutation, even though there was a trajectory, if you go from chimps to lowland gorillas to mountain gorillas, with increase in body size, increase in commitment to terrestriality to life on the ground there is a series of trajectories we get the foot is a little stiffer the big toe is more robust and less divergent the lateral toes are a little bit shortened and the heel gets a little bit longer and a little bit broader with increasing size if you just extend those trajectories of each of those anatomies i just described a couple of notches past uh, lowland gorillas or mountain gorillas you have a Sasquatch foot, essentially. It's it's no longer, the big toe's no longer divergent, but it still retains a tremendous degree of splay, uh, potential for splay. Um, it has a very wide, elongated heel to, um, to uh, manage that tremendously increased body size and uh, to disperse body weight over, greater, over a greater surface area, since surface area doesn't, doesn't scale at the same rate as body mass does, then Sasquatch has to compensate, just can't enlarge a human foot, but it has to modify the pattern of a early hominin foot with much greater breadth to length ratios. And, um, and without the arch, you don't have the concentration under the ball and the heel. You have it spread out over the entire surface of the sole of the foot. And Sasquatch has that very distinctive walk, that Groucho walk or the compliant gait. So behaviorally, functionally, you can also reduce the ground reaction forces uh, that would be extremely amplified in a very heavy, heavy uh, creature like this. And uh, so when they walk, they place their foot, you know, you, you look at the typical Sasquatch track, and unlike a human track where there's a differential impression under the heel and under the forefoot, and there's peak pressure during the heel strike and the toe off, the Sasquatch foot, if, if, it, if it doesn't, if the substrate doesn't yield and produce a pressure ridge, is remarkably flat, remarkably flat. And so there isn't, I mean, there isn't evidence of a heel strike followed uh, subsequently by a toe off through the big toe and the ball of the foot especially on the neither side. I mean, it, it lands more or less flat and it pushes off primarily from the forefoot. The toes are there for traction, not for propulsion so much, and thereby they remain longer relative to the foot than ours are. They're somewhat intermediate between 
a very early bipedal hominin like Australopithecus afarensis and a modern human, which is about what you would you would predict. But long, I mean, that it they they're able to grasp those irregular surfaces and and uh, negotiate that uneven terrain. Boy, I have a lot of questions here. Um, <laughs> I want to get into Snell Grove. We're going to go there yeah. because everybody wants to know know more details. Uh, I've heard a little bit of details from Blaine Highcheck and Doug regarding pre-production and post-production of Monster Quest and the strangeness that is Snell Grove. Um, well, let's go there. The nail board, if you haven't seen the episode, they pretty much, um, they put a nail board outside the door to stop what they think is bear breaking into a remote cabin. And uh, you find trace elements of blood, basically do a dot to dot matrix and find that the galvanized nails leave a perfect Sasquatch track over over the nail bin um however there's strangeness after this develops according to doug and blaine and i'm not speaking out of school the rock throwing incident at snell grove was a lot more interesting than they were able to share a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor were you yeah. privy to the rock throwing and was there i guess some heightened strangeness that happened on or during that rock throwing that you witnessed uh, yes, I was privy, certainly privy uh, to the whole thing. And and, uh, and and let me make it clear, too, to your listeners, the nail board, it was actually a screw board with threaded galvanized screws. Um, that had been the, the incident with the board where something stepped on it had occurred almost two years prior to um, our uh, venturing up to that location. So, uh, you know, when it was described to me, I was excited and then when i said so where has this been kept and they said oh it just leans up against the cabin in the sun in the snow i go well i said the chances of it recovering any dna are just about zero nil i said but and so i thought well we can go through the motions we can talk about it and so forth but that's when as we're doing the interview and i'm kind of sitting there as there because there's always a stop and start and as during one of the pauses i'm, I'm looking more closely and that's when we noticed not not only the blood, but what was and the blood was so deteriorated it almost looked like paint. Um, but in those threads of those screws, uh, uh, those that fell within the dot to dot, as you described it, um, there was uh, down near the board there was a, a oily, fatty substance, and then as you came up, there were little shards. Of what looked like beef jerky, it was muscle tissue uh, that had literally been reamed out, it seemed, by these screws, and so and and hairs. There were uh, stray stray hairs intertwined, wrapped around, you know, tangled in the threads of the screw that had been. And so we carefully collected those, and they looked very promising right off the bat. Sasquatch hair has the consistency at sixty-five microns of an average human head hair. And so you can tell right off the bat, if you've got something like bear or deer, that's much coarser, the guard hairs are much coarser. And so um, anyway, um, so yes, there, there was that. And then, uh, and then there was this experience with the rock throwing. And so we would routinely stay up quite late out in front of the cabin 
And um, I mean, it was really quite when the air was still over that lake, you could hear things going on on the opposite side of the lake, you know, a quarter, half mile away, as if they were standing right next to you. I mean, it was like a telegraph you know, system. It's just the, the sound carried remarkably well. So we were listening to various things and occasionally we would throw our, our voice to try to make calls. Uh, uh, um, there was, you know, there was a little bit of tree wrapping too, for whatever uh, good that did. But uh, uh, then there was this rock, um, Dwayne, uh, Blaine, sorry, Blaine had, had gone over and uh, uh, to relieve himself off the porch because the outhouse was about, oh, 75 yards down the catwalk into the darkness of the edge at the edge of the forest there. And uh, so he wasn't inclined to go back there by himself. And I had, I, I'm not a, a real night person. And, uh, I was starting to fade. It was like 1.32 in the morning. I was starting to fade a little bit. I said, I'm going to go in and just splash some water in my face. So I was inside the cabin, which is walled with corrugated steel. Um, and uh, and there was this, it's like someone had shot a BB gun against the side of the, uh, you know, against the side of the wall, uh, right next to where Blaine was standing, which uh, gave him quite a start, to say the least. His eyes were biggest saucers and so i come walking out there and they they all say well so did you hear it did you hear it? And i said yeah i heard it i said who threw the rock just to gauge their reaction <laughs> oh no they you know they were all immediately professed it was none of them and i knew it was not them because i could see them over around the culvert that was the fire pit and and uh in one direction and blaine was over on the other side of the of the front porch and uh so anyway, we uh, we were there chatting about it and talking about, it. and uh, Kurt Nelson, um, he said, "Well, I'm going to pick up, a, I'm going to take a rock and throw it into the woods over there," and I half jokingly said, "Don't throw anything too big; he might pick it up and throw it right back at you, you know, return it with interest." <laughs> and so he throws this golf ball sized rock, and sure enough, I mean, it had only been like 10, 10 15 minutes. And I was facing towards the cabin with my back towards the lake. And I just out of the corner of my eye, because you've got this, you know, we kept the fire burning pretty, pretty high. And, and you've got this big glow there out of the corner of my eye. I saw something moving, arcing uh, up in the air above us, not directly above us, but above the cabin coming from behind the cabin off to the one side. And it arced over and bounced, um, several bounces across the metal roof of the of the uh, cabin with great uh, with a great thump and uh, it was so funny you didn't get the benefit of this on camera but uh, this whole group goes like a little line of pee hands right into the cabin <laughs> retreat hasty retreat and i'm going hey what are you where are you going this is why we're here and it was so funny though because there was a, a stack of firewood uh, that was in the shadows that would cast by this raised culvert, the wall of the culvert. And so I didn't quite, didn't really notice it. And as I took a step, I rolled my ankle on a, on a little piece of cordwood and I went down. Well, they thought I'd been beamed by another rock. <laughs> so to their credit, they came to my rescue. And, uh, and of course, it made excuses that they were, they were, uh, 
you know, retrieving the camera equipment so they could film. I was okay, okay. But then, unfortunately, as if you're familiar with the with the episode, Kurt made the uh, unfortunate statement that here we are cowering in the cabin. I got so much email because of that one line. <laughs> what were you doing in the cabin? Why weren't you out? Look, well, we did go out, but what, as you point out, what didn't make it um, into the episode was eventually after we ventured out and you know it was fruitless because it first it's a little bit dangerous the 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 ground there that that the geology there i mean you're on the canadian shield basically solid rock with moss and trees growing on top of it that lake is this this kind of a shallow puddle on top of the rock there are places where you could walk across the lake because it was so shallow um and uh crevices and cracks covered with moss it was really easy if you got off of the little portage trails there wasn't a lot of hiking a lot of off-trail hiking so we had finally you know given up we didn't have this was before the handy little flares that we have today and uh and thermal imaging obviously not and uh and so there wasn't a whole lot we could do we had we did have one uh, you know one piece of equipment but it was very very expensive and there was actually a representative from the company that was loaning it to us there to operate the piece of equipment <laughs> so eventually again I, we're starting to fade i mean now it's really late it's almost like three in the morning and i'm about falling as excited you know the adrenaline ebbs and then you're all the more tired and i'm about to pitch over into the fire pit and i say look i'm gonna hurt myself if we if i don't go to bed nothing's happening now so I, uh, the, we agreed we'd go to bed, but we'd keep our boots on, so to speak, kind of, you know, like firemen on the ready for the alarm to go off. And sure enough, the lights went out and uh, I mean, my eyelids just quickly got heavy and all of a sudden, kabam, 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 across the roof is this thudding sound and uh, Blaine won't like me to have, Blaine screams. <laughs> And all the lights go on. I go, no, no, turn the lights off. Turn the lights off so we can see out. You turn the lights on, we can't see anything. All the, all the windows turn into mirrors. And um, we're looking out. You know, I wasn't that eager to go running out. I wasn't cowering, but I didn't want to get beamed uh, because, because we immediately uh, determined. You looked out the back stoop, uh, the side of the cabin where the sounds had come from, and, some, uh, and a big chunk of cordwood apparently had been thrown onto the roof from the wood pile out back behind where the cutting yard was and and it had bounced off and landed on the catwalk out towards the outhouse and and uh, so if it's raining cordwood that's a little different than golf ball sized rocks lobbed onto the roof um but anyhow um that was that was thrilling yeah but again we eventually ventured out didn't find anything so dr melgram aside from the the trackways and from like eyewitness and firsthand experience like you're describing what in your opinion is the other like strongest evidence to support uh existence of sasquatch right well it's yeah it's hard i'm always uh i'm always i always struggle with superlatives because there's different aspects of different things i mean I rank the Patterson-Gimlin film up there really high. It, it set the bar so high as far as photographic evidence 
uh, and and I'm so confident in the credibility of that film by this point that 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 really is a uh, a compelling piece of evidence. Um, you know, the hair, the fact that we have hair that defies attribution to any known wildlife, which is and is but is clearly primate in character. It most resembles human hair. Uh, but it differs from typical human variability in the remarkably consistent absence of the medulla, the medullary core. Now, I guess I should qualify it. The, the gold standard took shape around a number of samples that lacked a cellular medulla, and it, it is very possible that we tend to cherry pick <laughs> those specimens that now fit the gold standard while making an error you know of of of, of uh false uh rejection of specimens that might be sasquatch that might um represent some variation but it's you know in humans only individuals with very light almost toe-headed blonde hair ever lack that cellular medulla with very fine hair um although we have sasquatch samples that span the entire color spectrum that has been attributed from you know essentially white buckskin kind of beige right on up through uh light brown dark brown black mahogany black so it, it all of the hair has um varying proportions of eumelanin and pheomelanin eumelanin provides black pigment and the pheo is a reddish brown pigment and so you know when you've got those two rheostats if you if you dial them down dial them both down and it's almost white if you start dialing up the red you get the light beige and and uh, brown as you bring up some of the dark and then you know the vast majority of reports are are described as dark brown or black that seems the most common dr meldrum i want to go back to the patterson gimlin film because oh, sure. i completely agree with you and we and we talked to you about this in depth when we interviewed you um a couple of years ago in vernal utah um and you know what's really interesting to to us as filmmakers is we can take a step back and we can look at that footage and think about the logistics that would have gone into producing something like that mm -hmm. in other words you'd have to hire an actor you would have to coach that actor and how to walk a proper mm -hmm. way to you know look like something non-human you would have to find you and, and, and of course finding an actor of that size would be difficult in and of itself and then you would have right. to find uh, a costume designer that would be of oscar caliber to design that suit that would right. be form fitting and we all know that there wasn't a lot of form fitting suits back in the late 60s right. um there's an instance in the film where you can see the thigh muscle it almost looks like it's contracting or moving can mm -hmm. you can you kind of expand upon some of the other hallmarks to you in that footage that really just makes that footage the best evidence we have well absolutely um and and there's there's so many layers you know and you you touched on 
one layer, the logistical pragmatic aspects. But then even if you could fulfill those, then you would have to have somebody who could look in a crystal ball and anticipate what the conventional wisdom of uh, anthropology 10, 20, 30 years down the road would be when at that time, what you were creating was actually contradictory to the then, um, you know, prior to a paradigm shift, to the then notion of what um, uh, a Sasquatch, you know, should look like, what a, a hominin, bipedal hominin should look like. And so, yeah, that's, that's what, what uh, really blows me away, that when I, when I take, um, tackle that topic now, you know, with 50 plus years of hindsight, um, it's really fascinating to see those combination of traits that anticipate what our current knowledge is. For example, one of my favorite, I'll really illustrate this, is Dr. John Napier, who was a primatologist at the Smithsonian. He was on the panel that actually observed the Patterson-Gimlin film at the Smithsonian and, and uh, later talked about it in much greater depth in his book, one of the first academic books on the subject of Bigfoot and, and Yeti. And uh, uh, sorry about the, the dogs are getting excited about something. Like that. So You've got a Sasquatch um, outside. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, he, in, in his book, he noted that the, um, he noted that the, um, sorry, I'm just kind of see if there's something I could get their attention with. Just so you know, we don't hear it on our end. Oh, okay. Oh, that's, that's fine then. So, um, in his book, he noted that, and he, and he was forthright enough to acknowledge he really couldn't put his finger on a reason for rejecting the film on its face. But other than the notion that when he observed this figure from the waist up, it was essentially looked like an ape. From the waist down, it essentially looked like uh, uh, it was human-like in proportion. And he said he could not imagine such a such a, a mosaic, such a hybrid of structure existing in nature. Therefore, it must be contrived. Well, it's interesting because the book came out in 1972. By the mid to later 70s, we had the announcement of the discovery of uh, Australopithecus afarensis. And for the first time, we had um, hip bones, we had pelvis, we had knees, uh, and so forth, that clearly confirmed that these, these creatures had lower extremities that were much more human-like in their uh, attributes than, say, chimpanzee-like. And how did they describe it to the popular press? They said, isn't this interesting? From the waist up, she looks like a chimpanzee. But from the waist down, she looks like a little human. Isn't it curious how evolution has combined in unexpected ways these traits? Well, what if, you know, you have to ask, what if John Napier had delayed the writing of his book by another five or six or seven years? You know, would his impression, the, the very linchpin of his rejection of the Patterson-Gimlin film evaporated? Because now, with, with that 2020 hindsight, what you see on the film, and there are other traits we could talk about, you know, the flat face and the absence of projecting canines, 
a foot with a non-divergent big toe that isn't incorporated into an arch, as had been argued, you know, and so forth. Um, what if, uh, you know, how, how might, um, or how was it that these traits, which now, with a much more expansive hominin fossil record, we understand, and we have a better profile of what an early hominin. See, if I if I wanted to write an introductory text in anthropology, an illustrated text, and I needed a picture of something like a robust Australopithecine, Paranthropus boisei, with the exception of her size and the stigma attached with that now iconic image, I could pull a frame from the Patterson-Gimlin film and use it to illustrate the, the fundamental concept of a bipedal hominid, one that's robust, that's you know heavily muscled, that's walking upright, but yet has a small brain, not much bigger than a chimp or a gorilla, has it lacks the, the manual dexterity and the and the intelligence to have modified stone tools to have a stone tool culture. Um, it you know it it would work. It really would work. When we met circa two thousand and eight, it was uh, accompanied by an oral. Uh, storyteller, gal by the name of Esther Stutzman, who is a Kalapuya elder. Mm. And um, before Esther agreed to speak at that event, she basically chided me for calling during the wrong time of year. Uh, I didn't know that there was a certain season to talk about who she calls Chichu Chippy, the Kalapuya term for Sasquatch. And so then we got into the nuances of working with First Nations people and their oral traditions about Sasquatch. Now, some of the things they have to say about Sasquatch are, you know, very strange in nature. They believe in Sasquatch walking between two worlds. Right. How, do, how does acad, academia look at First Nations people and these stories if they hold them to be true? Are we, how do we relegate, you know, right. oral tradition, fact, and fiction? Well, I think it, if it's taken within the same context as their interpretation of the natural world as it relates to other entities that are much more commonly known to to the non-tribal community i mean you know we we hear stories about the raven and about the coyote the trickster and this that you know they have qualities they have characteristics that uh, you know it's kind of like aesop's fables you no one would would think that the fact that the author has attributed these characteristics to common uh forms of of uh you know woodland creatures and such that that somehow negates their existence that they must be imaginary then you know and so i i just see that uh, in, in a broader picture you know i try to be careful not to say because like, i have in the past you know made a statements like there there are no examples of entirely mythological creatures in the storytelling of um, of the uh, indigenous peoples and and that may not be entirely defensible there might be a few but it might just be that there the embellishments have become so elaborate that we no longer recognize you know the the creature like it's hard to the, the Wendigo, for example, has certain characteristics that we might think are reminiscent of a giant, upright, hairy biped. 
but then it also has attributes that seem quite um, un, unusual. And are those just literary embellishments, you know, that have have become exaggerated through the millennia, or are they uh, totally, from our perspective, or do they? I mean, just put, let me put it in a different way. Do they lack a basis in the conventional biological world that we are familiar with? And and I, you know, my my interpretation and in, in having interacted with many tribal people, um, and, and it's not unanimous because you, you you really can hardly expect it to be, but the the majority of the individuals see it uh, strain much further into the real world, you know, with just a foot in the in the other worldly aspect um some might disagree with me but uh you know when you see those depictions of like the zonaqua and and i've witnessed pictographs and petroglyphs all up and you know from front from british columbia all the way down to the most southerly reaches of the rockies that show the exact same creature uh depicted with little head broad shoulders great big hands upraised and the humanoid feet sticking off to the side, you know, emphasizing those appendages as distinct from a clawed bear with pads and so forth. And, and they're, they're, the artists are quite capable of depicting the distinctive anatomy. So a bear paw is very recognizable as such. The only challenge is distinguishing a Sasquatch track from a human depiction. But I've, you know, I've uh, encountered numerous examples of human that, again, anatomically accurate with a big toe that's differentially um, uh, larger than the subequal lateral toes with a well-differentiated arch, rounded heel. And then you see there's, there's a prime example uh, that I was able to examine in the red cliffs of, uh, of Wyoming that is anatomically accurate as a typical Sasquatch track, right down to the, you know, more more subequal toes, the the more um, uh, squared off disposition, even down to a mid tarsal pressure ridge in the right place in the right orientation and everything. It's really quite stunning when you see it. Wow. So, Doctor Meldrum, I want to shift the conversation a little bit here. Okay. Um, right now in Washington D.C. UFOs are on trial and yeah. people are coming out of the woodwork. And we're talking about people saying things like the US government is in possession of um, non-human biological you know, right. samples. Um, and they're saying this under oath in front of a congressional subcommittee. Right. Do you see a situation? Could there be a situation like this where Bigfoot finally gets his, his due in court? where we can finally put this out to public scrutiny because you know we all know we're all here because we know that there's been thousands if not tens of thousands of eyewitness reports of bigfoot sightings and the majority of which i think and we think since you know we've started doing our documentaries have been very very credible people who've had extended good sightings a lot of them in in broad daylight do you think that at some point or another we're going to start seeing a, a sea change and maybe we ride the the wave of the ufos 
Yeah, I mean, in in some ways, there's there's so many remarkable um, parallels, like the uh, the uh, recriminations against witnesses and so forth. On that level, um, I have to say, from my own personal experience, and it's limited, I'll admit, but my own, but uh, it's more extensive than a lot of people's. Uh, I have not experience anything to uh, confirm in my mind that there is an overt conspiracy from on high to suppress information what what i my experience has involved middle management you know the district supervisors and and uh, park rangers and so forth who are motivated um not so much out well in part i guess it, it parallels the uh the career advancement that, that they've talked about in these hearings. Um, they, they don't want their reputation impugned. They don't want um, uh, their credibility. They don't want questions to be raised about the, uh, about potential misuse of public funds, investigating or uh, even reporting this kind of stuff. Uh, and it and it spills over from agency. I mean, I've interacted with U.S. Fish and Wildlife. I mean, by interacted, I mean I not only have had casual conversations, I've actually been invited to the district office in Western Wyoming in Lander, and presented to their entire staff of of scientists. And uh, and uh, um, in fact, there was so much interest, the office staff, the secretarial and office managerial staff sat in on the presentations and um they actually would train trail crews in identifying and distinguishing sasquatch tracks how to make plaster casts we had reports funneled our direction some of the most impressive 16 inch tracks i've seen were were uh, referred to us by uh, a wildlife biologist who had a couple of uh, of uh, atv rangers you know backcountry rangers that uh, they were actually snowbirds he he was retired from uh, wildlife law enforcement in Florida, would spend his summers in Wyoming and his winters back in Florida, and um, uh, very skeptical of this topic of Sasquatch and the skunk cave. But after seeing these tracks, now he carries a casting kit on his ATV. Um, anyway, the point being, that's been my experience, that it hasn't come from above, but it's this middle management that kind of suppresses. So the local rangers or the, you know, the park rangers, the fishing game agents, they just don't, they don't want to rock the boat and there is no official. Now there may be also at that intermediate level, it's just like kind of the history here in Idaho with the wolf. There was a lot, a lot of suppression of sightings of wolves because they didn't have the budget or the, manpower the personnel to um, carry out a management plan and as long as they were extinct then you didn't have to have a management plan as soon as they acknowledged that there were wolves then suddenly there'd be mandates that would come down so uh there there were wolves for a long time before they were in, in idaho before they were finally acknowledged as having been and and it muddied up the whole reintroduction um uh, operation and uh, it was quite a legal and political hot potato Th and so having said that now let me take a step back again 
that I think is the contradistinction to what's taking place with the UAPs, UFOs, is if these claims, uh, the 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 uh, underlying claims are true of recovery operations and reverse engineering operations and collection and examination of, of uh, biologics is true, then that's different. I I haven't seen any evidence of anything that would suggest that kind of thing is going on at the, at the upper levels with Sasquatch. No, you know, uh, secret labs, no uh, autopsies, no helicopters with, bo- with uh, burnt corpses in body bags from Mount St. Helens, you know, nothing to back any, any of that up. So, um, so then we're left with, you know, uh, who's going to legislate anything on the basis of something mythological and, um, uh, in their mind, mythological. I mean, where, where there's an absence of physical evidence. So, yeah. Regarding this uh, subject matter, Dr. Mildred, have you ever spoken to a colleague or a friend or someone uh, that had entrusted value to you as far as... Uh, you know, looking at the body of work, someone professional that has a compelling case to say that Sasquatch is much stranger than the narrative we've talked about today. Um, As far as the UAP aspect maybe being connected, um, one of the earlier things I I heard was from Sally Shepard Walford, who told me the story of Autumn and her living on the Ording River, where they would see disappearing tracks and strange lights. Now, that was just a one-off that was one individual but now over the body of evidence and having looked at this up close and personal myself i feel like maybe it's time to talk about there being a possibility of there being shady areas here to quote tom pell sure and i you know i sort of tried to keep an open mind and you know never say never but i you know i try to also be objective and to hold those who uh, further those discussions to the same objective standards of, of evidence. And, and so my experience has been that they never rise above the level of, of subjective anecdotes. Um, when I've asked for documentation of, of uh, you know, orbs, for example, uh someone's got to be taking pictures of these things and i and uh the the in one case where the person who was willing to share such a picture was eager to and i said be sure you know this is the best example you have he's oh yeah and he sent me this snapshot that was a nighttime flash photo and it was it was tree pollen you know if you've ever been out in the woods in the especially ponderosa pines when they go and pollinate those, uh, it's it's like a blizzard. And if you've ever stepped out of your your um, tent at night to go relieve your, relieve yourself, say turn on your headlamp, and it's like a whiteout. It can be there can be so much pollen in the air. And I said, are we on the same page? You're you're talking about these little little specks of light. Oh yeah, he said each of those is an orb. I said, okay, that's kind of what I suspected, you know. And then and, and as I was telling this story one time at a at a uh, uh, on a given occasion the person 
pulls out their phone. He says, well, look at this. What about this? Well, and he had a picture from downtown <laughs> in a, in a, in a, on a little, uh, you know, main street um, with cars parked at an angle and he's sitting in a car and he's shooting through the windshield and he take, takes a little, takes a little video and on the storefront in front of him, there's this bouncing ball of light. Well, he's parked in the shade. Uh, the sun's coming across the tops of the of the buildings in front of him, probably hitting pane these big pane glass windows behind him, and something's bouncing off, and it's dancing like a bouncing ball of light. And he and he fully acknowledged that could have been what it was, because I mean, you know, what, how else? What else? What are you going to attribute that? to otherwise under those circumstances are they related to ufos well you know that's possible but i mean why would just because this is anthropomorphic then do we think that it somehow has qualities uh that are different than all the other forest creatures out there you know are, are gorillas being visited by by ufos uh, they get planted here by ufos i mean uh, you know, I, I tell people that in many ways, the, everything about, I mean, I, and I think Dr. Bindernagel, not, uh, to, to spread the love around here a little bit, his thesis in his first book, North America's Great Ape, the Sasquatch, he did an excellent job as a, as a wildlife biologist of navigating the technical literature on primate anatomy and behavior, especially great ape anatomy and behavior, and showing example after example after example of remarkable parallels in the anatomies and behaviors attributed to Sasquatch encompassed within the variation of those same anatomies and behaviors known for the great apes. So again, I mean, why would we, without direct, I mean, it's one thing if someone had a video of a patty stepping out of a silver disc, you know, or tic-tac or whatever, uh, that would be something different. We could have a different story. But to attribute um, a UFO sighting with a coincidental, potentially nothing more than a coincidental and unusual, perhaps, encounter with a Sasquatch, as opposed to, you know, bumping into a bear or having a deer cross through the headlights. Or, I mean, you know, I just don't think there's a basis for varying the standard. And I have asked, you know, I've taken people up on invitations to go out into the field to try to experience these, these, you know, kumbaya moments and nothing happens. <laughs> you know, it's just crickets, you know, or these people who are having psychic connections. It's always telling to me, if you stop and think for just a moment and ask, ask the individual that is in psychic communication with some clan of Sasquatch, what do you talk about? And, and if you get an answer, usually it's like they've been hit with a two by four. <laughs> they, can't, they can't construct a sentence, let alone give you a coherent answer. Those that do, you'd think you were at the, and this is not, this will sound sexist of me, but it's, it's, a, it's a meme, it's a standing joke. You think you were at a, a Miss America contest during the, the Q&A. You know, you get this warm and fuzzy kumbaya, peace on earth. Humans are not taking care of their stewardship and it's time, you know, it's it's end times. It's it's all the new age messaging that's as generic and canned as you could possibly ask for. 
and so it um you know no no insight no <laughs> no uh, uh or even not even not even uh yeah though it's been awfully hot around here lately you know why don't you guys clean out the forest so it quits burning down around our ankles <laughs> or something like that <laughs> but um well you know dr melder and you bring up some really extremely valid points the tree pollen resonates with me because you know i've been a cameraman since i was 13 years old i'm now 47 and so i've seen it all you know what i mean and yeah, and, yeah. and and we have had a multitude of individuals send us photos and share photos with us and it's just kind of like it's like it's like yeah you know that's a fast shutter because the flash went off and it was raining or it was drizzling or yeah. you know any number of things um what i can tell you though is that we do have a couple of pieces of, of footage in our next documentary that that we have scrutinized and scrutinized and scrutinized and we've decided to put them in the film because we um have run out of explanations run out of mm -hmm. debunking and and i just want to say in all fairness that that so many individuals out there have um you know we talk about the the, the photographs with the dust pollen and whatnot but we we've we have individuals that have actually seen glowing balls of light and and we talk about in the documentary ball lightning and and, and other things and so mm -hmm. i think i think the point that i'm trying to make is we're all looking for a science behind all of it that it, that that would explain what it is that people are seeing out there mm -hmm. and whether or not that science exists to decode what it is they're seeing or not is up for debate i guess right. at this point you right. know so um I just wanted to throw that out there that that what's what's really interesting to us is that the amount of sightings that that coincide with other sightings you know we're talking about in all four corners of the country and so on and so forth so mm -hmm. we're keeping an open mind as well sure and i and I, yeah and i i don't mean to go too far over the top sometimes i perhaps get a little carried away with my uh, cynicism because I have had to, uh, uh, you know, spend so much time sifting through so many extraneous claims. But um, it, I mean, and, and the same, the same applies to uh, many claims of encounters with Sasquatch, period. I mean, I have, I've learned even with um, footprints, because in the case of a footprint, you you presumably have a a trace record of that feature, and if they have the presence to photograph it or and or cast it or whatever, and there are so many instances of overinterpreted or misidentified um, footprints that you just you cannot accept the account at face value. I mean, we learned this with the Yeti. Um, I had a student that was eager to, she wanted to go into forensic anthropology and wanted to do something with footprints to have an experience. And so I said, you know, I've always wanted to, to really catalog, to track down and document as many examples of these footprints attributed to the Yeti as we can. Because, you know, you'll see a publication or a, or a summary article and there'll be a whole table with this chronologic sequence of of these enigmatic footprints attributed to the yeti and sifting through those what we found was there were literally three uh that even had any resemblance to an, a hominoid the rest were either um bare 
I can't remember what the breakdown was now. The vast majority of them were unintelligible. If they couldn't identify them sufficiently to attribute them to any common wildlife, then guess what? The default was they must be sass or Yeti. And so you had all this, this padding of these reports. But there was also blatant misidentification of bear traps. And, and this has led in part to the, to the big uh, swing within a num- from a number of authors, um, Messner and uh, Taylor Ide and, and others trying to debunk the whole thing as nothing but bear. Uh, they've got a lot of material to stack up, you know, in support of that argument. But um, the the Shipton photo and the uh, McNeely Cronin and the Hutchison, those are the three that have the appearance of a chunky chimpanzee. But my point is, you know, again, I, I, I get, get down the rabbit hole here, but my point is this whole list of supposed Yeti tracks evaporates upon examination. And that's more often than not the case with reports of Yeti tracks, including those that start and stop mysteriously. Um, no one, no one can, has demonstrated a documented example of that. Uh, I've seen a couple of snapshots, you know, again, the snapshots from off a very steep angle panoramic shot. And, and, it's, and, the, and the, the one that, I, that comes to mind, it was in snow. And there was a snowdrift across the the trailing end that had just wiped it clean, right, right off. It wiped everything clean, but they didn't acknowledge that uh, that fact. So, you know, there. And so, when you when you translate that to encounters, you know, you with if with with there's with no corroboration, with some sort of trace or physical evidence. Uh, or multiple witnesses, and then still you're at the mercy of the credibility, the powers of observation, the experience level, the motivation, anticipation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so if, if that is so dicey, then when you take it to the next level, to high strangeness, as, as you'd like to call it, uh, you know, how, how reliable are those experiences? <laughs> And their their ability to interpret, if it's something that we can't fathom scientifically, um, and I and I don't rule out things that are extraordinary, uh, you know, beyond our ken as it comes. But if we can't, then how can we rely on the ability of simple people who have no scientific background to evaluate their experience, especially novices that don't have. Uh, train or or uh, power or you know skills of observation so forth. Our guest today has been Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Uh, any last questions here, Brett and Jill, before we let the good doctor go? I have a hundred more questions. Actually, no, <laughs> it's true. It's true. But we gotta we gotta. I'm happy to come back some other time. And gracious with your time, Dr. More. Meldrum. We really appreciate you coming on tonight. Well, I, I appreciate. Uh, a very good and sensible, thoughtful um, conversation. All right. Well, as we say, we will see you in the trees. And uh, you have a project coming out here soon. Um, we were just talking about that before the show. There was some fundraising that happened for a sequel to Legend Meets Science. It's under pre-production now. Mm-hmm. Uh, any firmed updates for 2024? I believe you said maybe sometime 2024, 2025. 
Well, that's, yeah, I would expect that. He's he's trying to, and the reason for the fundraising, he, he would like to, the, uh, Doug Hycheck would like to produce it independently. So he has the creative autonomy to really do it like it should be done rather than uh, being contorted by the uh, preconceptions of some executive who may know nothing about the subject matter. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure you can all relate to that. So so the fundraising gave him some independence. It'll, we'll see how, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's very ambitious in the scope he would like to cover. Uh, we covered a lot in Sasquatch, the first Sasquatch Legend Meets Science, and there's a lot of lines of evidence. There's been a lot of developments, a lot of things on the cusp. So um, he's he's very ambitious. We'll see how it all pans out. But yeah, I would say at the very earliest, late 2024, more likely 2025, when it uh, at least now the production maybe will certainly come out before the book does, because I'm I'm uh, writing writing the companion volume that will obviously um, springboard off of the content of the documentary. And then some, just as with the previous uh, volume. Okay, look forward to it. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. This has been a Resonance Production podcast. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can email us at bigfootrevealedpod at gmail.com. Also, if you're just discovering the Flash of Beauty universe, you can watch our documentary on most major streaming platforms.